I like to be king. Maybe you do too. I have a friend actually, um, and in her workplace, she is utterly open about the fact that she likes to be the princess. Now bear in mind, she's actually quite self-aware, so I know that she says this tongue-in-cheek. But she says it when the rest of us won't. But there it is. We want to be king. I want to be king of the road. And if I were king of the road, I would probably outlaw the people that are dawdling well below the speed limit or the people that forget there's anyone behind them on the road. I would like to be king in my workplace, definitely. I would like to have minions to do my photocopying of my class notes and to do my research papers for me. And I know this actually exists because back in my city days, I was one of those minions. I was possibly the best paid photocopier and preparer of research notes and drafter of letters that you ever did meet. I know this exists, but I haven't yet worked it in my workplace and I'm not king in my workplace. I want to be king over my money. I want to decide what I save and I want to decide what I spend. And the biggest one of all for me is I want to be king over my time. You do not spend the first five years of your working life recording every six minutes of your time without learning that time is money and time is power. I wonder what it is for you. Where is it in your life that you want to be king? Is it over your time? Is it over your money? Is it over your future plans? Where is it in your life that you want to be in charge of making all of the decisions? Is it at work? Is it at home? You see, kingship is a central element in our text today. When the disciples are with Jesus, Jesus is entering the Jerusalem, which is the royal city, and he's doing so as its king. And the disciples who are with him name this. If you've got your Bible there, you can see that, he's, that the disciples say in verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're naming it. He is king. And what's really interesting is actually this phrase comes from one of the Old Testament Psalms. It comes from Psalm 118, verse 26. If you want to turn there, I'm just going to reference it quickly. But if you want to turn there, it's page 616. When it appears in Psalm 118, what it actually says is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in Luke's record, what the disciples are doing is slightly changing the psalm reference. They're not saying blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This time it's blessed is the king. They're naming it. This is the king. Now that is actually implicit in Psalm 118, but it's not made explicit until the disciples do so in relation to Jesus. In Psalm 118, it talks of a king implicitly who is coming to the temple. And he is coming to the temple and the priests are about to welcome him. And in the verse after, in verse 27 in that psalm, it talks about festal boughs, which is where we get this idea of palms, which interestingly don't appear in this gospel, but do appear in the other gospels. The king in Psalm 118 is coming to his temple. And the priests are welcoming him. The priests 
are saying, this is our king. He is welcome into our temple. In a similar way, disciples in Luke are saying, this is the king. He is welcome in our temple. Jesus, the text wants us to know, is the king and he is coming to his royal city. And in describing him as the one who comes, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, the one who comes is also another reference in the Old Testament, this time to Malachi. Malachi was one of the prophets, and in chapter 3, verse 1 of his text, he also describes the one who will come. In fact, the one who will suddenly come to his temple. And you saw, didn't you, at the end of the reading that Jesus, the coming king, comes into Jerusalem on this cult as the king. And where does he go first? He goes to the temple. You see, the coming one in Malachi was going to come, and he was going to come suddenly into his temple as the messenger of the new covenant and as the one who would purify the temple, the one who would make pure again the worship of God. That's what Jesus does. He clears the temple. And so Luke wants us to know who Jesus is more than anything else. What we need to know in this passage is that Jesus is king. He is the messianic king that the Old Testament scriptures prophesy. He is the king who will enter the temple, who will purify the worship of God again. And you know, in verse 33 of our text, we have him taking a colt. The disciples get the colt, they bring it to Jesus, and Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt. Now, in Luke's version of this story, he does not make explicit that this is a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, another Old Testament prophecy. But the parallel gospel accounts do make that clear. And if you look in Luke, you can see it there implicitly, because the word he uses for colt in verse 33, is exactly the same word used in the Greek translation of Zechariah 9.9. So the Hebrew Bible was written in Hebrew. Zechariah 9.9 was originally written in Hebrew. But there was also this version called the Septuagint, which was like a Greek translation. And the word used in Zechariah 9.9 for cult is a very specific word. There's more than one word you can use. But the word that is used is polon, and that is exactly the same word that Luke uses here. Luke wants us to know implicitly, whereas the other gospelers are explicit, implicitly this is also a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Fairly clearly then, we have Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, as the king. And here's what's interesting. In this passage, we have two responses. The first one we've begun to see already, it's a joyous, welcoming response. It goes as far in verse 36 that the disciples spread out their cloaks along the road for Jesus on the colt to walk over. Now, if you were closely in the text at that point, you'd come back to me and say, no, Chloe, it says not the disciples, it says the people. Verse 36 says, as he went along, people spread their cloaks along the road. It's actually not. It is the disciples. The thing is, in the original language here, what it actually says is they. And the translators of the NIV have made the assumption that it's just people in general. But every time in those verses surrounding that it refers to they, it is clearly referencing back to the disciples. This is part of the disciples' response, as well as their joy, as well as their exclamations of, 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 of just joyous, happy welcoming of the king. They also lay down 
their cloaks. And it's reminiscent of 2 Kings 9.13, where another king called Jehu is anointed by Elisha to be king. Elisha is the prophet that follows Elijah. And Elisha anoints Jehu to be king. And when Jehu comes out of the room where he has been anointed, the people who see him, his subjects, welcome him, affirm him as king by laying down their cloaks. So these disciples are affirming the kingship of Jesus as they lay down their cloaks. They're all participating, verse 37. The response is one of praise and rejoicing, and it is really loud. This is a full-on celebration of Jesus as king. They lay down their pride. They are not embarrassed by the noise they are making. They lay down their self-concern, and they lay down even their possessions in the form of their cloaks to declare that Jesus is king and they exist only for his service. It's a beautiful picture. But then we realize that not everybody in the crowd is a disciple. Verse 39, we hear that there are Pharisees who are present. We haven't heard about the Pharisees in this passage yet, but suddenly they come forward, and with them we see the second response to Jesus' kingship. They say in verse 39, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And when we look at this second response, it seems to me there are two things to notice. First of all, they call him teacher. They call him teacher, and in calling him teacher, they treat him as an equal with them, for the Pharisees are the teachers of Israel. They call him teacher, not king. They should have called him king. They, of all people, they're the teachers of Israel. They should have seen the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. They should have seen who he was. And they chose not to call him king, but to put him on an equal footing with them. It's interesting, isn't it, how having a proud heart can make us blind as to the truth that we should see. And so it was with the Pharisees. They chose not to admit his kingship and they call him teacher. That's the first thing we need to see about this response. The second thing is what happens when we refuse to accept Jesus' kingship. They say teacher and then they say rebuke your disciples. They're angry at this response. They're embarrassed by this response of the disciples. They're probably cringing inside. Maybe you've felt the same sometimes. I have. You know where you watch someone worship in this really full-on way or you watch someone on a street corner preaching Jesus and inside you're a bit like, oh, that's kind of embarrassing. And I think that's how they felt. And in this case, in the text, that happens because they're denying Jesus. They're denying that he's king. They're denying that he's worthy of that kind of devotion and that kind of worship. And it makes me wonder whether when I feel that way too, when I feel embarrassed or irritated by someone else's worship, perhaps 
it's that I don't understand quite how fully Jesus is king and does deserve that kind of worship. Because it's the only right response. As Jesus says, if these disciples stop praising, the very rocks will cry out. Creation will take its place because all of creation knows the king deserves worship. And if the people don't do it, creation will do it. But the Pharisees can't see this. And why can't they see this? They can't see it because they refuse to bow to Jesus' kingship. They refuse to declare that he is king. They would rather be kings themselves. They would rather stand aloof and determine their own destiny. So when we look at Jesus' kingship, we have these two responses. The response of the disciples, the joyous, welcoming response, but also the response of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees' response we see from verses 41 to 44 is a widespread response. It's not just the Pharisees, but it's Jerusalem on the whole too. And verse 42 says, if you, this is Jesus saying to the city, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. This hiddenness. This blindness is exactly what we just saw pride do to the Pharisees. And we know, don't we, from the passages we've looked at this year that Jesus makes clear in Luke 4 that he came to open the eyes of the blind. Yes, in a physical way, but also in a spiritual way. And doesn't it just show us that you can refuse to receive the healing of Jesus? We can, through our pride, through our determination to choose our own destiny, to be kings of our own lives, we can choose not to be healed of our spiritual blindness. And Jesus weeps about this. And then what follows in verses 43 to 44 is a terrible judgment. It's made particularly terrible by the fact that this is what Israel wished on its worst enemies in Psalm 137. The bit of Psalm 137 that we don't even normally read because it's quite graphic. And Jesus is saying here simply that there are consequences for being so prideful that we don't recognize the time of our visitation. The text there in the NIV says the time of God's coming to you, but the literal phrase is the time of your visitation. And I think the emphasis Luke has here is not so much on God's coming, but more on the fact that the king was now visiting the people, that they missed the visitation of their king. Jerusalem missed it. The Pharisees missed it. Maybe even some of us so far have missed the time of Jesus coming to us as king. The difference for us is that it's not too late. For those men and women in Jerusalem, it does seem like it was too late at that point. They decided against Jesus. They decided that they would rather be king of their own lives. But this Easter, we have the opportunity to respond differently. You see, Jesus is now king in his kingdom. He's come into his kingdom 
there is an amnesty for us. There is an opportunity to lay down our own pride. If you want to give up the rights to kingship in your life, if, if I want to be honest that, frankly, I've not been doing the best job of running my life. If we want to say, you know what, let me lay this down and give Jesus permission to be king in my life, then there is an invitation for, from God for us. From the God-man, the one who paid the penalty for our sin, who paid the penalty for our pride and our mistakes so the slate could be wiped clean. That's what happened at Easter. This is a king who invites us to crown him as king in our lives, to shout with those disciples that blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, a king who lays down his life a week later in the most painful of deaths, a death on a cross. And does so why? So that we might have a fresh start. So that we might become part of his kingdom, a world where everything is being made new and where one day the best world that you can imagine will be the world that his people live in. And the only thing you have to do, I have to do, is to receive him. The only th- it feels too simple to be true, but the only thing we have to do is say, yes, I want you to be king in my life. I want to lay down my pride. I want to lay down my self-focus. I want to lay down my desire to be king because I want Jesus to be king. And for some people, it may be that this is the first time of wanting to receive Jesus. If that's you, let me encourage you. It's the simplest thing you can do, although it will have huge ramifications for the choices you make in the rest of your life. And one of us who are here today would love to talk to you more about what it means to say yes to Jesus as king. For others of us, we've already said yes to Jesus as king, but actually there are parts of our lives where he's not entirely on the throne. He may be calling us to give up control in a specific area. And maybe as you've heard the text today, maybe as you've heard about his kingship, maybe you've heard his call to let go of a particular area of your life. Maybe you've realized that you've been sitting on the throne. It might be about your spending or your saving. It might be about how you spend your time. It might be addictions that you find yourselves tangled in. It might be a relationship that you desperately want to hang on to, but you sense God is saying that is not a good and healthy relationship. It may be the need to be liked that is king in our lives. It may be some kind of substance, you know, overdependence on caffeine or chocolate (laughs) or something else that no longer Jesus is king in our life, but that thing is. Whatever it is, just take a moment where you're sitting and ask the Lord this question. Is there a place where you are not king in my life. We're going to take a moment just to listen. And if something's come to mind, then if you're willing, if you want him to be king in that place, why don't you ask him?
Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus, we welcome you as King. We bring before you those parts of our lives that have not known your kingship. Or where perhaps we've let you slip off the throne and we've quietly got onto that throne ourselves. Dear Lord, please come and help us to get off the throne and to give you your rightful place. And we ask this in your name.